The following sermon was preached on June 13, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled Gospel Liberty or Anarchy on 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Throughout the history of the church, there's been a great tension between Christian liberty and anarchy. Now, in one sense, that's quite understandable. Because the gospel, indeed, is a radical message. The Apostle Paul himself says that uh, in Christ there is no male or female, there is no slave or free, there is no Jew or barbarian. Uh, we're all God's sons and daughters, all of equal footing in the family of God. But does, how does that work out then in the social economy, in the relationships, in the family? And that's been the great tension throughout the history of the church, in the ancient church. But think particularly of, of the Lutheran Reformation where many of the peasants, taking seriously the doctrine of their liberty that was in Christ, wanted to throw off all authority, and we have the peasants' rebellion. It was a misunderstanding of their liberty. It was anarchy and not Christian liberty. Or come forward right now to 2020, 2021. And what are we seeing, not just in the world, but now in churches with critical theory, the whole wrong concept, not of uh, equality, but of equity, when suddenly people are judged by the color of their skin as oppressors if they're light-skinned, as the oppressed if they're not, wanting to do away with, with all other social distinctions, all economic distinctions to a great leveling. Even the Southern Baptist Convention two years ago said that critical race theory was a tool that could be used uh, by the church. It's a serious issue. And Paul often addressed in his letters this particularly thorny political issue in gospel freedom of this relationship of master and slave. In Ephesians 6, in Colossians, James does so uh, in his letter as well. But it's a particularly difficult text here as Paul addresses now uh, the relationship of slaves, not just in general, but to unconverted masters who might be tyrants or to Christian masters with whom they are, are brothers or are, are sisters uh, to them. Uh, what does the gospel say about that? If we grasp that, we'll see what the gospel says about other relationships, but more importantly, what the gospel says about our hearts as we respond to various difficulties around us in these social relationships. Paul started in chapter 5 of First Timothy of dealing with relationships within the congregation. He first deals with how do we approach one another with respect to admonition and encouragement. Then the lengthiest section of the entire letter is this church's and family's responsibility to the widow and, of course, to the poor. And then he addresses, from a number of angles, the church's responsibility to uh, the ministers and the elders in the church. Now, this last relationship that he addresses is found here in these first two verses, slaves Christian slaves to their masters. And what I want to show you here is that the gospel preacher is to teach or inculcate uh, social duties to the glory of God and the well-being of the brethren. That the gospel preacher is to teach or to inculcate the, the social duties 
um, to the glory of God and to the well-being of the brethren. And we're going to look at three things from these two verses. We're going to consider the Christian slave, uh, the gospel promotes the Christian slave's social duties to a non-Christian master. The gospel stimulates the Christian slave's social duties to a Christian master. And the gospel preacher is to teach or inculcate these social duties. So in verse 1, the Holy Spirit is showing us that the gospel promotes social duties of Christian slaves to unconverted masters. Look at those words. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now, as we look at these words, perhaps the first question comes to your mind, well, why do you say these are slaves' duties to their unconverted masters? Well, there's two reasons. One's the context. For you notice in verse 2 then, he, he specifically addresses the slave's responsibility to a Christian master. So there's a contrast. But more importantly, it's the language that Paul uses here when he talks about those who were under the yoke as slaves. This was a Roman concept of slavery. In Roman law, the slave was but a bit better than the beast of burden. And thus they were considered as those who were under a yoke, just as an, an oxen might be under a yoke. And they could treat that slave pretty much like a beast of burden. Now there were enlightened owners. There were slave masters in ancient Rome who had friendships with their slaves, who entrusted their children to the slaves for their education, uh, who uh, made slaves their heirs. I think Julius Caesar made Augustus. Uh, one of them made a slave, his, his heir. Um, they would free them. They would pay them a slave stipend. It's actually a Latin word for slave stipend and give them a slave stipend so they could buy their own freedom. But those were the few. It was a wretched system. Uh, and as I said, the slave had no more liberty than really than an animal. They could beat him. They, many masters thought they could kill their slave for, the, for any offense that, that they wanted to. So that's the context here. This is the, the kind of master we're talking about. Not simply a nice, gentle, genteel master. No, we're all talking about the tyrant, the pagan, the one who would treat you as if you were a beast of burden. You notice in his commandment to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. An amazing commandment. You've got this bully, this tyrant, this man who's treating you like an animal, and he says that you are to regard him with all honor. This word regard Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he talks about the, the congregation's responsibility to the eldership to esteem them. In verse 13, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's the same word. You have regard for them. And so Paul is saying that it's the same concept. This regard you would have for a godly elder in the church, you are to have that kind of regard, that kind of of esteem, even for a pagan master, if you're a Christian slave laboring under the yoke, that he is worthy of all honor. Now we've seen in chapter 5, this concept of honor is both reverence and respect, but it's also a fiduciary, it's financial. Honor the widow, and that meant not just treat her as an elderly woman, but it means you take care of her financially. Or give double honor to the, the preaching minister in your midst. Yes, you respect your elders, but uh, there is a fiduciary responsibility. And I think Paul uses this term here to say that the 
the Christian slave owes his master a good day's work, regardless of the attitude or the tyranny of the master. And he's to do so without grumbling and complaining. That's what it means. Regard him with all honor. Uh, in our reading this morning in the law, the, the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is a due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, not if they commanded them to do something contrary to God's word, but all lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense, maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their several ranks and nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities, covering them in love, that they may be an honor to them and to their government. Or as Paul will say in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, uh, with respect to this duty of slaves, obedient to your masters according to the flesh, fear and trembling, sincerity of heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men. And notice how Paul puts all of this into a gospel context. That all of our obedience is to be done to the Lord, not to men, but to men for the sake of the Lord. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So he's saying submit. Submit without grumbling and complaining. Submit giving them a reverence that is due to a superior and give them honest work regardless how they treat you. Now, obviously, that was a difficult pill to swallow. And so uh, Paul sweetens that pill with this motivation so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now you see how he has raised the ante. In Ephesians he does say as service rendered to the Lord. But now he's showing us that uh, if the Christian slave does not obey this injunction, the very name of the triune God is going to be dishonored. It's going to be blasphemed. Our doctrine is going to be disregarded. One of the accusations would have been, and it was in the Reformation as well, that they're, they're tearing down all structure of authority doing away with all um, uh, economic structures in the society. And, and Paul is saying that if you do not give this proper honor uh, to your pagan master, God's name and our doctrine will be spoken against. God will be dishonored. Our doctrine, our glorious doctrine of salvation will be dishonored. But then what's the reverse of that? But the reverse always holds true. If, in fact, the Christian honors properly his master, gives him good service, the name of God is going to be glorified. Christian doctrine is going to be exalted. Think how often Peter uh, deals with this when he talks about suffering in his epistle. Even a wife married to uh, an unconverted husband. She won't win him, he says, by her word. She can win him by her Faithful behavior. When we submit the yoke, we seek to serve God, we seek to honor God, oftentimes God will bless that. 
who change least of heart and character, if not conversion, of the ungodly around us. And you see how important this is then. Now, none of you are slaves, but some of you probably have difficult work situations. You might have uh, a foreman or employers who are bullies, who are pagan. They're, they're wicked and unrighteous. You have co-workers that will resent you if you try to give your boss an honest day's work for what he pays you. But do you see how this applies to any social relationship? Whether it's a wife that's married to an ungodly husband, whether you're bound up in some ungodly, difficult work situation, Paul is saying the same thing. Honor God. Know that as you honor God, and here's the pattern of Christ which Peter gives us in his epistle, which Christ himself said, I come not to, to be served, but to serve, yes, to be the ransom, but to be the servant. And he was quiet. He didn't push back. As the Lamb of God, that was for our salvation, but also the wonderful, meek character of our Savior. Amazing. So Paul calls us to this, but you see how this is so counter now to our American culture. We have our rights. We must insist upon our rights. We get full of resentment and bitterness. You children can behave this way. You don't think you're being treated properly. Then you get angry. Uh, the Savior says, turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. You see, that's what Paul's inculcating here, isn't he? This humbling ourselves, following in the pathway of the Savior. Humbling ourselves under insults, attacks, rudeness, not having always to defend ourselves, not always insisting upon our rights, but humbling ourselves with a, a meek Christian spirit. That's how this text applies to every one of us as we sit here today, from the youngest to the oldest. So, it really is the social duties of the gospel with respect to a believer and an unbeliever that the apostle is teaching here as he teaches the social duties of a Christian slave to a non-Christian master. But it gets to what is even more difficult in the second heading, and that is he's, the gospel stimulates the Christian slave in his social duties to a Christian master. That's the first half of verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren that must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So here, Paul is showing us that, yes, it's, it, it just becomes a difficult situation. Slave and master are in the church. Sons of God. They sit beside one another in the church. We're reminded then that in the church there is no slave or free, no male or female, no barbarian, no Greek, no Jew. And James addresses this, doesn't he, in his first epistle? That we don't make social distinctions where people sit in the church. Everybody's going to be treated in the church with the same uh, godly uh, behavior and love. So how does this speak then? That my master is my brother in Christ. Well, Paul expresses it both negatively and positively. Negatively, he says, don't disrespect him. 
Don't disrespect him. Those who are believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them. Now you can see the temptation. Here's the Christian slave thinking, well, who are you to lord it over me? Why aren't you working out the gospel uh, in this relationship of ours? Uh, why do you continue to keep me as, as a slave? And the Christian can become embittered. Again, grumbling and, and complaining and not serving his Christian master with joy. Paul says you can't do that. You can't do that. No, he does address masters, how they treat their Christian slaves as Christians. But here he simply says, the Christian who has a Christian master is not to disrespect him. Of course, again, the opposite then is, as we read in cities of inferior superiors, he's going to respect him and submit to him. And that leads to the positive that Paul says, uh, but must serve them, the middle of that verse, must serve them all the more. Well, the word for serve here is the word in the Greek that's used for the service of a slave. You do slave service to him, but what is the comparison all the more? It seems to be even more than you would give to the pagan master. You give your Christian master uh, even more as you're serving him indeed uh, as a brother uh, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Because. Because he's a brother. Let that sink in. You're to serve him more because they're brethren. And they partake of the benefits of our believers and the love. So he says that um, as a fellow heir in Christ, <coughs> they're believers brothers, and they're beloved. They're to be loved by the slave, as God loves both the slave and the master. And so it's out of Christian love now that the slave serves more to this Christian master. And Paul kind of turns the world upside down here, as he often does, when he says, uh, make them partakers of benefits. That Greek word is normally used when a superior does a good deed for an inferior. But Paul now is talking about the inferior making the, the Christian slave master the recipient of these good deeds, these benefits. So that there is a, as a family service is taking place here as well. Uh, there is joy that is, is taking place. And Paul says that is what the gospel does. You see, the gospel sweetens all relationships. It helps us with those bad relationships with pagans. But you see how in a Christian relationship, sweet the gospel is. How Paul used those motivations in Ephesians 6, that this is serving the Lord. It's for the Lord's glory. It's for the good of the brother or the sister. And again, to go from the instance to the principle, what, what Paul has shown us here is the beauty and joy, the privilege of Christian service. Because we all are to be serving one another. Not just in structural relationships, yes, we must do that faithfully. But in our congregational relationships, in our family relationships, we are to serve one another as our Savior serves us, cares for us, nurtures us. 
So the Christian slave is to be stimulated by the gospel to social duties owed to a Christian master. We come into the last thing. We've seen the duty of the slave to the pagan master, the duty of the slave to a Christian master. But notice the instruction to Timothy, teach and preach these things. And here we see that the Christian preacher, the gospel preacher, is to inculcate these social duties, is to teach these social duties. Now we've seen this commandment two other times in this letter to Timothy. And rightly, here the New American Standard puts it at the end of the section. Uh, in 4.11, they put it introduced in the next section, but in fact, Paul always concludes the previous exhortation with this particular commandment given to the minister. Teach and preach. Teach and exhort these things. Now, it's not the purpose of the pulpit to address any type of social issue. But what I want you to see here, that what Paul is demonstrating for us is the very important doctrine of the spirituality of the church. And what that means is that our task is to preach the gospel for the gathering and the perfecting of the elect. For the behavior then of the Christian in the workplace, in the family, and whatever. And to all the moral duties to which God calls a Christian. But it's not the purpose of the church, please listen to me, to effect social change. It's not the purpose of the church to redeem society. Do I believe in spiritual change? I sure do. When a man and woman are converted, suddenly this family begins to function in a different way. The man begins to behave differently at work. Uh, and all kinds of relationships change. Neighborhoods can change. Workplaces can change. The gospel brings change, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel for the conversion and perfection of God's elect. Now, this is going to be shocking for some of you. Paul, or no other New Testament writer, the Savior himself, never went about the business of abolishing slavery. I'm not defending bad forms of slavery. I'm not defending uh, the abuses of slavery or even racial-based slavery. But we read it clearly in Leviticus 25 that Christians could own slaves and bequeath them to their children. And immediately we've got to get off this business that all slavery was racist. No, it is a biblical principle. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, there's not one word in the Bible that the church ought to set about abolishing slavery. I think the gospel abolished slavery in the way that it changes all kinds of social relationships. But Paul never wrote to a Christian master, even Philemon. He says, treat him like a brother. Never wrote, never campaigned against the government. And this is a great problem today now with the, the social justice gospel, no gospel, message has crept into congregations in the Presbyterian Church in America. You need to understand, we must preach the gospel. Glory in Christ. And that's clearly what Paul says here. He says, teach and preach these things. He's not saying, now I want you to go out and abolish slavery. I want you to teach slaves how they live as Christians. That's the duty of the pulpit. And then notice the method. 
I've already seen these two words put together once before in chapter 4, verse 13, when he says, teach and preach these things, Paul says in 4.13, um, until I come give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and teaching. Uh, the, the noun exhortation, this is the verb form here uh, that's translated in the New American Standard, preach, is teach and exhort these principles. Now, we are to, to disciple, we're to do family visitation, but notice once again, this is the third time, and then with 4.13, the fourth time, that the Apostle Paul highlights, highlights that preaching is God's primary means of grace. And our responsibility in the pulpit is to teach all the truth of God's Word, the whole counsel of God, so it's not that we avoid issues. We teach against uh, sexual perversion, we teach against homosexuality, we'll, we'll teach against any violation of God's moral law. We'll preach against uh, racial hatred or any kind of pride. We preach the Word. We teach the Word. But we must notice this second word, exhort. Translated, preach. But what Paul is saying, all preaching must do two things. And a lot of preaching today is not doing the second very well. We must teach the Word. and must drive the Word home. To the conscience. So Paul, in the great commandment of 2 Timothy 4, to preach the Word in season, out of season. Notice, reprove rebuke, exhort. Must, preachers must drive the word home to the consciences, must appeal to our consciences, must call us to repentance and change of thinking and change of behavior and encourage us with the gospel truths and sweetness to walk in the ways that God has set before us. The grand privilege. This is what Antioch is all about teaching and preaching and pastoral care, conversion, and uh, discipleship. And so Paul addresses a very difficult issue in his day, becoming a difficult issue in our day. We come back to the one foundation that we have, right? We come back here. That the, the gospel preacher is to inculcate the gospel social duties for the glory of God and for the well-being of the brethren and not to stir up rebellion, but to learn the true doctrine of Christian liberty, which is expressed in the chapter in our Confession of Faith on Christian liberty, which is uh, chapter uh, 20. In the fourth paragraph, and because the powers which God hath ordained, the liberty which Christ hath purchased, are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty will oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. That's simply based on what Paul is teaching here. But you know, my dear friends, there is one slavery that I will preach against. There's one bondage that I will do all I can to see everyone delivered from. And that's the bondage of sin. To come to true Christian liberty in Christ Jesus, as the first paragraph says that liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and they're being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion, death, grave, everlasting damnation, freedom of access to God. Are some of you here this morning in that slavery? 
You get all upset about social injustices, but is your heart today in bondage to sin, to Satan, to the lust of the flesh? You realize this bondage, if you don't escape it, will lead you to an eternal bondage, eternal damnation. Well, that's what Christian liberty is all about. Christ, the great freedom fighter, has come. And he's done everything as the ransom of sinners and the servant of sinners. He's obeyed the law of God perfectly. He's laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. And he's calling to you every time you hear the gospel. Repent and believe in him. He'll deliver you. The bondage, the slavery of your sin, your lust, and your corruption. And he will bring you to this liberty in Christ. And there, dear friends, as you and I enjoy this liberty in Christ, then we have the work of the Spirit in us. We can obey these very difficult social duties. And we'll grow in grace to do so with joy because the Spirit of Christ who is at work in us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.